I realized a couple of things as I was listening to you talk, and that is that I forgot to ask you about the PowerPoint. Do I need to control that like I controlled it yesterday? No, Terry's got it. Okay. Oh, oh, look at you. Look at you. Just say next. Okay. And then I forgot to give you this to set in the back at whatever time you, you so please. So, hi. Thank you. That's, I appreciate it. I need you to talk back to me because I'm exhausted or I will, I'm not going to make it through. So I will try to be as brief as I can because Claude just wanted me to give a, give a brief summary of what we're doing in Mexico City. As he mentioned, uh, we planted a church in Portland, Oregon uh, 10 years ago. And to our surprise, I thought I would die in the pulpit at, at that church and wanted to die in the pulpit at that church as, as soon as possible. But I was actually, I found that God instead uh, called us to mission, something that I had never considered. Just to be completely honest, I have always thought that missionaries are the strangest people on the face of the earth. I carry multiple stereotypes uh, about missionaries, and I would like to... To, uh, to praise God that most of those stereotypes have been broken now that I've been exposed to the world. But it was not something that was, that was on my plan, nor my wife's, and certainly not my children's. But, but God called us, and he called us uh, next, please, by the way. Uh, he called us to the country of Mexico, which is over 122 million people, only 8% of whom are evangelical. And within that 8%, uh, about 95% of that 8%, is uh, what we might call uh, health and wealth or prosperity theology that we, good Americans, have kindly exported everywhere else in the world and said, Jesus is your hope to get out of poverty. Jesus is your hope to get the Lexus. Jesus is your hope to have the perfect this and that, but not much beyond that, which, which greatly disturbed us uh, because if there's anything that Mexico needs as a country, it needs real Hope. It's a country that, as many of you know, is ravaged by corruption. It is currently in the midst of, a, of an internal drug war that we also play a, a major role in, but don't get the brunt of it like this country does. Uh, Mexicans, over the past seven years, uh, have been surveyed and have chosen that the number one adjective to describe themselves as a person individually and as a corporate entity as Mexicans is the word distrusting. So in that country, there is so much corruption, so much distrust that the good is that families are very tight. The bad is that families are very scared to open up to others. And so it is a, is a country that desperately needs the hope and redeeming power that Jesus Christ brings. If we could look at the next slide, please. Uh, and as we got to know our Mexican brothers and sisters in the States, our Mexican-American brothers and sisters before we moved, we meditated a lot on this verse from Ephesians 3. To him be glory, that's to God the Father, in the church, that's us, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever. Amen. And when I read that verse as a Christian, the first thing I think is, amen. Yes, to God be the glory. To, to God be the glory through his perfect, sinless, stainless son, Jesus Christ. And through the church? Like, really? Like, the perfect, stainless son, Jesus Christ, and this broken, flawed often equally corrupt community. God says through the Apostle Paul, he's going to gather glory from his perfect son. And in just the same way, but through a different means, the imperfect church. And so we meditated on this and began to study how many evangelical churches were in Mexico, and specifically in, in the hub in Mexico City, and found that the, the number of um, citizens, in contrast to the number of churches, is 
appalling, like no statistic you could ever comprehend. In fact, it is almost a daily experience, now living in Mexico City, that I meet people who treat me like an alien, not because I'm a gringo, but because I'm a Protestant Christian. And they oftentimes have never met a Protestant Christian. And oftentimes ask me questions like, but wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, you just introduced her to me as your wife, and you're a pastor. That's impossible. You can't be a pastor and have a wife, because they're so unfamiliar with uh, the historical Protestant understanding of the Scripture. And so we said, we want to help Mexico City reach the rest of Mexico and help Mexico reach the world, both in Latin America and here in the United States, as the population numbers continue to change. And we determined that the best way to do that would be through the planting of churches. Me, my wife, and our two kids, we do not have the power to change anything. But thousands of local churches of 30, 40, 50, 60 people, they have the power, according to Ephesians 3, to change everything. So this is just a bird's eye view of our city of 25 million people. Uh, and our vision there is to help multiply healthy, biblical, gospel-centered churches in one of the largest and most strategic urban centers in the world. It is the economic hub, political hub, cultural hub of all of Latin America, and it is a magnificent city. If I can just throw this out there, if anybody ever wants to visit for any reason, for fun, for ministry, for eating food, I would love uh, to host you. We can go to the next slide. Uh, so what did that mean for us? That meant that the first year we spent learning language. We went down there with, with my family with no Spanish, me to next to no Spanish. So we went to, this is a picture of our university, uh, the Autonomous University of Mexico, which on campus, on campus, has 323,000 students. Uh, it was just bananas. Uh, so we spent the first year learning language there. And then you can go to the next slide. We're now in our second year. We've been there 16 months. This is a picture of one of the churches that we're helping plant. And from now on, it's planting churches, coaching church planters, and creating resources. One of the toughest things for the Mexican church in Mexico, which is growing, praise God, is the, the small, minuscule amount of theological and practical Christian resources available in their heart language and from a culturally appropriate perspective. And so our time there is going to creating more of these resources to planting more churches and to coaching existing planters. We planted this church called Doxa uh, along with uh, uh, a man named Jesus Rodriguez, a, a Mexican national. It's also an Acts 29 church. It's the only Acts 29 church in Mexico and one of very few in Latin America. Uh, and then we also are helping plant uh, another church, which will launch in January. And then we are helping replant a church wherein the lead pastor just died of a brain tumor and a 25-year-old boy, is that fair to say? Young man. Young man is, is now taking over as, as uh, the pastor. Mexico City is one of the most incredible and beautiful places I've ever been, filled with the most amazing people I've ever met. And yet these people who God loves, who he made in his image and who I love, are without the hope uh, that Jesus Christ brings. And so if you would like to help bring hope, the hope that Christ offers to these people, we can look at the next slide. Um, you can do that through praying for us, which would mean the world to us. That alone, I have never been so aware of my desperation for the prayers of others if I have since living there. Another way you can do that is by supporting us or partnering with us financially, which you would be invited to do on a one-time basis, a monthly basis, whatever you would like. I just want to share you just a picture. This is what rush hour on the metro looks like, and you can't see uh, a good 
probably 70% of the people who are standing behind those people. It is a literal fight. It is a wrestling match, literally, for women and men to get on to the metro. Uh, and the vast majority of those people you're looking at, if not all of them, don't know the hope and peace that Jesus brings. And so I leave you with 2 Corinthians 9, 12. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about their partnership in prayer with other churches. And he says, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. In other words, I report to you on behalf of all the Mexicans that we're serving with that there are Mexicans who know that there are people here who pray for them and for us, that there are people here who partner financially to allow us to be there with them and for us, and they tell me over and over again, please, please, please thank those who do this because they themselves are thanking God that his word is going forth because of your generosity, because of your prayers, and so forth. Amen? Amen. So I should preach now. All right, so if you have any questions about that, just want to hear stuff, I'd love to talk to you more in detail later. That's the end of my slide presentation, and we are now going to talk about God's Word. I would like to make a confession as we're doing that. One of the things that sometimes happens when I guest preach in other places is that I get on an airplane and I fly, and packing, I pack my underwear, I pack my socks, I pack my shirts. I tend to almost always forget a Bible. <laughs> so I'm going to preach, but I don't have a Bible. You got me. Oh, yes. Okay, good, good, good. So when I first got the notice from Claude that, uh, that he was inviting me to come and be with you guys this morning, I thought, man, Claude really, really loves me. And then Claude sent me the passage that he wanted me to preach, and I thought, Claude hates me and desires to humiliate me in front of dozens of people. Not only did he ask me to speak on the most difficult parable in all of the Bible, Claude asked me to speak to you this morning about money. Now, I know... <laughs> And you know that, that no one in our culture wakes up on a Sunday morning and goes, I'm going to go to church this morning. I sure hope pastor's talking about money. And yet that's what I'm going to do this morning. <laughs> Apparently Claude thinks that's appropriate. Um, but Jesus most certainly thinks that appropriate, is appropriate. Because Jesus, as, as many of you know, talks about money a whole lot more than any of us are comfortable ever talking about money. And as Jesus does with, with, with everything, he talks about it in a way that you oftentimes would not expect him to talk about that very topic. And that's what he's going to do today. As we look at the scriptures today, what God is going to say to us in various ways is quite simply summarized as this. Christian, be shrewd with your money. Jesus' word to us about money is be shrewd with your money. Now, if I were to ask you to list out all the biblical commands that apply to Christians, everyone you could think of, not one of us in here would think to write down and, and be shrewd with your money. And yet, nevertheless, that is a command that Jesus gives to us in this text today, and, and that's exactly what he's going to teach us. And as always, if Jesus teaches us something, Jesus teaches us this thing because ultimately, it is good for us. So what is it that's so good for us? about being shrewd with our money? What is it that's so important about being shrewd with our money? What is it that's so spiritual about being shrewd with our money? So much so that God in the flesh stopped to talk to you and to me about it. That's what I hope we discover this morning as we read God's word. Let's start by reading the parable with the help of the screen. In what, what book is it from? I don't even remember what book it's from. Luke 16, that's the one. I'm sorry, I wrote this a month ago, but 
I'm, I'm sure God will speak to us in spite of my foolishness. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, and the Pharisees are also there in the audience. Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called to him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. The manager said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. So he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant, Jesus says, can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus starts with a story, a parable intended to instruct us that we should be shrewd with money. And why is that important? The first thing we're going to look at today is because money reveals what you believe about the future. Be shrewd with your money because money reveals, what you do with your money reveals, what you believe about the future. It's the point of the parable that Jesus tells as he introduces us to these two characters, the very, very rich man and the rich man's money manager, right? And it so happens that the very, very rich man hears some rumors. He hears that this money manager of his has been skimming money off the top. And so he goes to his money manager and says, word on the street is you've been taking my money. Here's the thing. This is the last day you'll be working for me. But before you go, I need you to give me an account of where everything is and where everything has gone. The money manager realizes, oh, he got me. What am I going to do? Like, I, I'm a money manager. I, I can't go get a job with somebody else managing their money after they hear what I just did with this guy's money. I can't do manual labor, he says, because I, I'm really not that strong, and I can't beg because I'm just, I'm just too ashamed. What am I going to do to live? I got it. I'll go to my master's debtors and I will win their favor so that once he fires me, they will gladly take me into their homes and care for me. So he goes to the first debtor and he finds out that he owes him 900 gallons of olive oil. The manager tells him, sit down and change that to 450. He cuts the man's debt in one instant by 50 
5%, which is equal to, we think, about three years of the average worker's salary. Now, I don't know, how many of y'all know Sally Mae? Okay, so if Sally Mae called you and said, hey, boo, I just wanted to tell you I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut this down by 50%, man, you would love Sally Mae. And if Sally ever ended up on the streets, you would open your home and welcome Sally with open arms. That's what this guy is doing. He's, saying, he's being shrewd and saying, I'm going to make a home for myself and a friend for myself by taking care of this guy. Then he goes to the second debtor and says, well, what do you owe? He says, I owe a thousand bushels of wheat. I cut it by 20%, make it 800. This, we think, is about the equivalent of nine years of the average worker's salary. Now, if somebody cut your debt by nine years' worth of your salary, you would be willing to do whatever to serve and care for that person if they were ever in need in the future. Well, obviously, the manager is going to find this out, right? Obviously, the man, or pardon me, the rich man, excuse me, the rich man is going to find out that once again, his manager, on his last day of work, when he's supposed to be giving an account for anything, everything, has instead chosen to use his last day to steal yet again. But the rich man knows, I've already told him I'm going to fire him. I don't have anything left to threaten him with. I have no power left. And so look at what he says in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager who just stole all this money from him. Why? Because he acted shrewdly. The master realized, I had him backed into a corner. I thought, I thought he was without hope. And in the last moment, this guy creatively comes up with a way to provide for himself. i got to give it to him. I mean, it's going to hurt me financially, but I admire this guy for his shrewdness. And this time, the manager chose to do it not by stealing money for himself, but by stealing money to give to others to win favor for himself so that he could have essentially a lifetime of free couch surfing. So why does Jesus tell this very difficult, very difficult story? Does he really want us to imitate this money manager? The, the money manager that Jesus himself calls the dishonest money manager? Of course not. And of course he does. That's why he's telling us the parable. Of course not, and of course he does. No, he does not want us to imitate his dishonesty. No, he does not want us to imitate his selfishness. He doesn't want us to be that kind of money manager. But he does want us to imitate his shrewdness. He does want us to look to the future and then make decisions regarding our finances and how we use them and interact with them based on what we know about the future, just as, as Jesus says, the shrewd money manager does. That's what he's saying in verses 8 and 9. If I could read that again, it says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind, maybe, in their own generation than the sons of the light. I tell you, Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, think of all this view of the future, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. In other words, to the degree that the money manager uses, to the degree that the money manager is shrewd with his worldly wealth, God wants you to be shrewd with eternal wealth. To the degree that the money manager lives in light of his earthly future, 
Jesus wants you to wisely live in light of your eternal future. How in the world do we do that? Jesus says, in the same way that the the money manager prepared for what was to come in this world, you ought to use your money and how you interact with it to prepare for what's to come in the world to come. But how in the world do we do that? First, we need to acknowledge that every single person in this room is a manager of somebody else's money. Doesn't matter if you're a Christian. Doesn't matter if you're not a Christian. As far as I know, everyone here is a human being. And every human being, everything we possess is entrusted to us by the God who creates and sustains all human beings. Which means God owns everything. And whatever passes through your hands, you are like the money manager who's making a decision on what to do with the riches of the richest of all rich beings. And just as the dishonest money manager had to give an account for how he used the rich man's money. You and I, Christian and non-Christian, we will give an account to God for how we use all of the resources, including financial resources, that God entrusts to us. It's the first thing we need to keep in mind as we think of how we might respond to Jesus' teaching here. We are the money manager. We manage God's things. The second thing we need to keep in mind is we need to have a right, correct, accurate view of the future. In my experience, I I have worked with three general types of people. This is a, a generalization. I hope that's okay. Three general types of people. The first type of person I've worked with are people who are so accustomed to being relatively middle class or higher that they take financial risks and spend money without a second thought. Why? Because their view of the future is that money will always be easy to come by, and so it's not really that important what I do with it now. Money will always be easy for me to get more of it. The second group of people, generally speaking, that I've worked with are people who are so accustomed to poverty, the opposite, that they likewise risk money and spend money without a second thought. Not for the same reason as the person who's well off and says money will always be easy to come by, but instead they look to the future and they see, I'm never going to get out of poverty. I'm never going to escape this thing. So I might as well take the money I have while I have it and enjoy it. I might as well experience pleasure. The third group of people are people who have reasonable means up to tons of money somewhere in there, but who tend to hoard whatever they have and are unwilling to spend it or risk it beyond necessity. Why? Because their view of the future is that their money is their security. And they are terrified of losing the thing that makes them feel safe, whether they have a little or a lot. Those are the three general groups of people. And Jesus doesn't want you or me to live like any one of those three general groups of people. He wants us to have a very different view of the future. He wants us to be a view of future that is to have a view of the future that is not focused primarily on the ease of getting more money, not focused primarily on the impossibility of escaping or advancing in up the financial ladder, and not focused on the possibility of losing 
what we already have. Instead, Jesus desires that, that our view of the future should be focused on the riches of this world being utterly replaced by the riches of the world to come. He wants our view of the future to recognize that the riches of this earth will pass away and that we will instead find ourselves face to face with the riches that will never pass away. If we have this view of the future, if we stop focusing so much on the things that come and go and start focusing on the riches that last forever, we will use, Jesus says, the riches of this world to secure the riches of the world to come. We will use the riches of this world to secure and protect the riches of the world to come. There are so many ways that human beings, that you and I can do that. We don't have time to talk about all of them, so let's talk about one. Let's talk about the one that Jesus himself focuses on, on verse nine, in verse 9. Let's talk about generosity. Generosity. The dishonest manager was exceedingly generous with his master's money in order to gain friends for himself. Jesus counsels us that we should be exceedingly generous with our master's money in order to gain friends for ourselves. Now, of course, the, the dishonest manager did all of this for, for selfish reasons. That's not what Jesus is referring to. Jesus isn't referring to us winning people over so that they'll let us couch serve. Jesus is referring to us winning people over so that they will become a part of the family of God. He's telling us to be generous for the purpose of expanding God's kingdom, just as the dishonest manager was generous for the purpose of maintaining his own kingdom. And if your view of the future is that one day this earth, with all of its wonderful God-made qualities, if your view of the future is that one day this earth will pass away and be replaced by the eternal city of God, if your view of the future is that one day Jesus the King will return to judge the wicked and reward the righteous, if your view of the future is that one day His people will live in perfect community with the Creator, with each other, and with everything that He's created, if this is your view of the future, it has to impact what you do with your money today. It absolutely has has to, if you actually believe it, that will show itself by, by convincing you and moving you to refuse to follow the, the flow of our culture, which right now is collect things and collect experiences for yourself. And instead, you will choose to follow the example of Christ who says, use your resources to collect worshipers for your king. How do you do that? By allowing him, the king, the most generous, the most generous of all, to be generous and to show off his generosity through his money managers, right? That he gets to show off his generosity through you. Now that doesn't mean that you just give away everything you have indiscriminately. Not at all. You are called not just to be generous, but based on this parable, you're called to be shrewd, clever, 
with your generosity. So how do you be shrewd? You should ask, how can I be generous in a way that will show off the generosity of Jesus? How, how can I wisely use the money and the possessions that I've been entrusted to with to call people's attention, not to me, but to Jesus? How can I creatively give the little I have or, or the, the much I have in a way that will help people feel the generous love of my king? And the answer is going to be different for every single one of us. Sometimes it will mean strategically being generous to a community of local believers. Other times it will mean strategically being generous to a missionary missions group or missions agency. Other times it will be uh, meeting a hurting family right in the point of their need. Sometimes it will be surprising an individual who you know exactly what they need is to feel and experience the generosity of God. Sometimes it will be something as, as simple as blowing your favorite waiter away with an overwhelmingly generous tip. And other times it will be something as complex as using your resources to start a business or a nonprofit that shows off Jesus in a new place, in a new way. I cannot tell you how God wants you to be generous and shrewd. I can tell you that if you are willing to be shrewdly generous, his Holy Spirit, his word, and his body will help you as an individual figure out how you, particularly and specifically, can live out Jesus' command to be generous. Because how you use your money reveals what you believe about the future. And what you believe about the future determines how you use your money. Secondly, the reason that we must be shrewd with our money is because money reveals who you are. If it's all right, let's reread uh, verses 10 through 12. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Money reveals who you are. We have a saying in our culture, money changes you. And like many sayings in our culture, it sounds so true until you think about it. Money doesn't change you. Money reveals you. If you are dishonest with a little, you'll be dishonest with much. I think our financial industry has proven that over and over again. If you are foolish with little, you'll be foolish with much. Professional athlete after professional athlete has proven that time and time again. Because money does not change you. It simply reveals who you've always been. And this is one reason why Jesus does talk about money so much. Not because he needs your money, but because how you respond to and deal with your money reveals who you are, who you are as a human being. So Jesus uses that principle to make the argument from the lesser to the greater, right? It says, if you can't be trusted to handle, handle worldly wealth, the lesser, who's going to trust you with eternal riches? If you can be trusted to handle his money, somebody else's, why would anyone trust you to handle your own money? And this is... This is common sense, right? Like if you can't handle your own five-year-old son, no one's going to say, you know what, you should teach this class of 35 five-year-old kids. <laughs> no one is going to say that. And we know that's common sense. And yet, 
we continue to live as if we are the exception to the general rule. You know, if I just had a little bit more, then things would be different. So we, we use the gifts and, and the talents that, that God has given us to serve ourselves instead of to serve God or to serve God's people. And we say, God, why aren't you rewarding my labor? Or we use, um, we squander, I should say, the opportunities that God gives us in life instead of taking advantage of those opportunities shrewdly to serve him and others. And then we say, God, why don't you give me more opportunities? We fail to be shrewd with our money, and then we wonder why we have less than what we would like. And the reason, of course, according to this parable, and Jesus' teaching that comes after it, is because we have proven that we can't be trusted with more than what God has already given us. Now, God, be careful here, is the most gracious being in all of the universe. God is full of immeasurable grace, and that is why everything we have, we have. Whatever you have, it is because of God's grace. But God is equally eternally wise. And as an eternally wise God, if you prove to him that you cannot be trusted with the generous gifts he gives you, he's not going to go out of his way to shower more and more and more generous gifts upon you. Unlike the rich man in this parable, our rich man is a very wise rich man. And he is not going to reward poor stewards with more of his resources to steward. So perhaps this is a, a reasonable moment for all of us to do a little bit of honest self-reflection. In fact, I, I'm going to do it right now, and I encourage you to do it as well. As you think about the, the money, the talents, the relationships, the influence, everything that God has entrusted to you, have you stewarded those things in a way that shows off his generosity? Have you stewarded those things in a way that are primarily focused on serving him and serving others in his name? Have you been wise in how you use the resources God has given you? Have you used them with your eyes fixed on the future that Jesus says is coming and will be forever? Have you been shrewd? If in any way or with anything you, you haven't had that future in mind, if in any way or with, with anything you've been more concerned about your own comfort and pleasure than about showing off your generous king, um, the good news is the reason Jesus includes teachings like this and sends people like me to preach these terribly difficult passages is because Jesus wants to give you the opportunity to change. And more than that, Jesus wants to transform you himself through the power of his word, the presence of his Holy Spirit, and the community of his church. And so this isn't a condemnation. This is a call to say, I could be more shrewd with what God has given me. I could be more grateful with all the things God has entrusted to me and use them to praise and serve him and not just my own comfort. Be shrewd with what God has entrusted to you because it reveals what you think about the future, and because it reveals who you are. Thirdly and finally, be shrewd with what God entrusts to you because it reveals who you worship. That's verses 13 and following. If we could see 13 again, please. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What we find out in the verses that follow is that the Pharisees who were part of this heard this teaching and were exceedingly offended. And that's because 
for a deeply religious person to tell them that when you think you're serving God, you're actually serving money is a deeply offensive thing. It is incredibly offensive to say, I know you think that you can have both of these things at the same time, that you can love and serve money and you can love and serve God. I need you to know it is simply not true. The Pharisees needed to be offended with that message that morning, and I imagine we need to be confronted and perhaps offended by it as well. God and money are not co-owners of our lives. God and money are, are not sharing mutual interests over how we respond to either one of them or how we govern our lives. God and money are competing masters that have competing interests for those who serve them, and neither one is willing to share their lordship, their kingship, their rule over your heart or mine, over your bank account or mine. One of these two, and only one of these two, will have their way in your life. Every decision that you make is serving one of two masters. Every decision you make with your money is serving one of two masters. You will either serve money or you will use money to serve God. You will either serve money and use your money to serve you, or you will use your money to serve God. When I was a kid, 19, 20, 21, around those years, I was working in Virginia Beach, Virginia, in the R&B and hip-hop industry. And well there, someone told me about Jesus. And my life flipped upside down for the better. And I ended up at a church, and inside this church in Virginia Beach, uh, there were a number of, of celebrities, like uh, a Timberland and a Teddy Riley and a Calice and uh, on and on and on. And as a new Christians in this church that had these very successful R&B and hip-hop producers and artists, I heard two things that as a new Christian destroyed me. I heard the pastor in a backstage conversation say, I don't care what those successful artists do with their lives as long as they pay their tithes. I don't care how they live as members of my church, as long as 10% of what they get comes into church. This man had a choice to shepherd the sheep that Jesus had entrusted to him or to serve money, to confront sin for the good of the people in his church or to not be willing to confront that sin because he didn't want to lose their money. And he chose between the two to serve money. He was fine with them leaving Jesus or leave it, leading a life that led straight to hell as long as his church could have financial benefit in the process. The second conversation that killed me as a new Christian was one of these artists said that they were aware of how this worked. This was not a new arrangement for them as a Christian, a professing Christian, and so they gladly gave their money to the church in exchange for the permission and the feeling that they could live their life however they wanted and would never be rebuked for it. Instead of trusting God to be his joy and his love and his pleasure and his forgiveness and his salvation, he used his money to try to buy joy and pleasure and forgiveness and salvation. We can choose to serve one but we cannot choose to serve both. And that conflict between two masters could look any number of ways in your life. It might look like you not having the freedom to obey Jesus and whatever he says to you because your security is not in following his will 
your security is in knowing how much money is in your account. If your security, if your feeling of safety has anything to do with your money, your ability to hear and follow Jesus' voice, greatly hindered. Or it might be the opposite. Perhaps you're incredibly generous with your money to people, to churches, to missionaries, to whoever, but not primarily because of your great love for Jesus Christ, but primarily because of your great love for you. Maybe it makes you feel like a great person to be so generous, and you want that feeling of self-approval. Maybe you feel like it buys you the blessing of God to be generous to God's people. Well, now God will be more generous to me. Now God will bless me with more. That's the primary motivation for why I give it. Or maybe the conflict between these two, two competing masters came into play on how you chose your college major. Maybe instead of asking which course of study is going to best empower me to serve the needs of this country or the world, you said, which course of study is going to best empower me to make the most money? Or maybe it happened when you chose your, uh, your current job. Maybe instead of saying, which job is going to maximize the gifts that God has given me in order to serve this city, you said, which job is going to maximize the opportunity for me to send up the ladder quicker than the others. These competing masters want us, and neither one is willing to share their lordship of our lives with another. Or maybe you're like I was when I worked in the music industry, and I gladly lied on behalf of my boss and betrayed my coworkers so that I could maintain the power and influence that I had and thus get the money that comes with that power and influence. We cannot serve both masters. Or maybe you're one of those people who says, man, you know what? I would love more than anything to do what this dude is talking about. I would love to be generous with what God has entrusted to me. It's just that I just, I just don't have enough. I, if that's your perspective, first I want to say I sympathize with you. Poverty is not an easy thing to live in. But I also want to say that the scripture tells us that poor people and rich people and everyone in between, we all have an opportunity to be generous. So perhaps, just perhaps, Perhaps it has less to do with you not having enough money and more to do with you not having enough margin with your money because you've decided to budget all that money towards your comfort and your pleasure without leaving any room to be generous to your king. In all of these cases and in so many more, we are vulnerable to serving the God of money in, re in, in place of the God of who entrusts us with his money, which ultimately is one of the principal reasons for which God calls you to be shrewd with your money. Because in doing so, you have the opportunity to reveal to yourself, to him and to others, who is the primary and sole object of your worship, who is really your master. And even though our culture doesn't believe it, and even though sometimes it's hard for us to believe it, it is much better for you to serve the master who demands your money than the master who demands your soul. It is much better for you to serve King Jesus. Because when you serve Jesus as your master, you are serving, in fact, the very one who has already done every single thing that he is asking of you this morning. 
being the, the eternal Son of God, the truly rich one. All of the riches of heaven, all of the riches of earth, all of the riches of this universe belong to, to Him, to Jesus. Everything is His. He's not entrusted with anything. He owns everything. And yet this Jesus, who owns all of the riches of the universe, chose voluntarily to leave all of the riches of the universe. He traded sitting on the throne of heaven for laying in a filthy feeding trough. He traded the endless praise of angels for the endless ridicule of human beings. He traded the riches and glory of heaven for the poverty and insignificance of Nazareth, and he ultimately traded his eternal life as God's son for the humiliating and excruciating death of a common criminal. Why would anyone do this? Why would anyone do this? He did it to win friends for his father. He did it to win worshipers for his father. Jesus is the shrewdest of all the shrewd managers for the pleasure of his master, for the good of every single person sitting here. Jesus was generous with everything he had down to every drop of his life, every breath of his lungs, every droplet of his blood. Because he saw accurately the future. He saw that if he didn't choose to take your guilt upon himself, he saw that if he didn't choose to take your shame upon himself, he saw that if he didn't take uh, God's punishment that belongs on you upon himself, that you would carry that guilt, that you would carry that shame into a godless eternity. And he, as the shrewdest of all managers, was not content with that. Which means that if your faith is in this Jesus, this richest of all rich men and shrewdest of all shrewd managers, all of these riches and more are yours forever and ever. And you have the privilege of getting to manage them well, getting to manage the resources of your adoptive father, your perfect father in heaven, the privilege of doing it in this world right now for his glory with eternal significance. A simple daily decision about what you're going to do with that $5, a simple daily decision about how you're going to interact with that person who wants something from you is an opportunity to make an eternal impact, winning friends and glory for the God who gave up everything for you. And for me, the most magnificent, one of the most magnificent things is that even though everything around you works against that, and oftentimes much of what's in you works against that, you have the power to say no to serving money you have the power to say no to using money to serve yourself and your own comfort. And you have the power to say yes 
to using your money, your gifts, your talents, your relationships, your influence, everything to serve God. Because one of the riches that Jesus purchased for you when he gave everything for you was his Holy Spirit who now powerfully, personally lives inside of you to give you the power to be shrewd with what God entrusts you, to give you the power to have an accurate view of the future and to actually value that future more than you value what passes away. And all of this is free to you because the richest man of all gave up all, because the greatest manager of all was willing to manage everything for the glory of his Father and the good of his children. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> how stunning that everything that you ask of us, your Son has already done for us to a greater degree than we could ever imagine, sacrificing more than we will ever sacrifice, paying more than we will ever have to pay to win us to you. And even right now, as we're thinking about that, your generosity is winning our hearts all over again. Our prayer is that you would give us wisdom, you would make us shrewd, so that that same generosity that has captured our hearts, that same generosity which is moving us to worship and gratitude right now, would be experienced and seen by those to whom you choose to be generous through what you've entrusted to us. May we be vessels of your generosity to win friends and worshipers for you. Amen.